Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition made possible with support from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm John Palferman. And I'm Dave Iverson. Each month, John and I take a look at a specific topic of interest in Parkinson's disease as we count down to the Fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September 2016. And John, today we turn to the problem of what causes Parkinson's disease, which is a vexing question for researchers since it always seems to be an elusive one to find a definitive answer to. That's right, Dave. For many decades, researchers focused on whether certain environmental triggers, like pesticides, for example, cause the disease. And then in the past 15 years, there's been a much greater emphasis on the role of genetics and in turn on how genes and environment likely both play a role together. And if the cause remains murky, so too is the question of what puts someone at risk to get Parkinson's and what might protect against it. And it's on that question of risk that we began our conversation with Dr. Jeff Bronstein, director of the Movement Disorder Program at UCLA. Most of what we know about risk is really by association. So we're not sure if they are truly causative or not. So the very strongest risk factor, other than genetics factors that we haven't discussed yet, uh, is the association uh, with smoking cigarettes or the inverse relationship with tobacco products. And it's quite strong. We don't know if this is, in fact, causal or not. There's evidence to support that it causes it, that it is protective, but there's also some pretty compelling hypotheses that it's uh, confounded by uh, personality issues that may occur before the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. So one can imagine that a product such as tobacco may contain things like nicotine and many other compounds that are protective and people are very uh, good about getting their doses every day and all day long, so it would be a great delivery system. But it's also known that people with Parkinson's uh, have lower dopamine levels in the brain for many years before they actually have symptoms. So maybe the lower dopamine levels make people less addictive and therefore they tend to quit smoking much earlier and therefore you'd get the same result of less people uh, smoke when they get Parkinson's disease. The latter is actually supported by the fact that alcohol and caffeine products seem to be associated with an inverse relationship as well or a protective relationship. There's some basic science data in animals that suggest that nicotine and some of their products might have a neuroprotective role. So I think the controversy still exists, and uh, it's a difficult one to resolve for sure. So let's turn to things which tend to increase the risk. What has epidemiology found about characteristics that seem to be predictive of a high risk of getting Parkinson's disease? So there's a number of things that have been associated with an increased risk, and ones that have been best studied uh, and I think have the most compelling stories are pesticides. There's certain pesticides such as Paraquat, Rotenone, Diram, one of the ones we study a lot, Benamil. So a number of pesticides, when people are exposed to high levels like in farms and uh, applicators, appear to have a significantly higher risk. And there's support of this association due to animal models. So there's several animal models that can recapitulate many of the aspects of Parkinson's disease. Uh, there are biochemical abnormalities that make it very plausible, things that we know 
are in, involved in the pathogenesis of Parkinson's disease with alpha synuclein, et cetera. So I think the pesticide story is by far the most compelling, although it's still a pretty small piece of Parkinson's disease. There are some solvents that have a similar story, not quite as well developed. One's called trichloroethylene, which are used for cleaning parts and were used in dry cleaning. There seems to be some pretty good evidence for that, both epidemiologically and in animal models. But then there's some other things that I think are important as well. Head trauma, for example, seems to increase the risk a bit, though it's been a little bit variable. Many of these risk factors are cumulative. And so head trauma plus, say, paraquat exposure has been found to significantly increase risk. So it's probably going to be a combination of many risk factors. Jeff, can you say something about why it's so hard to make a definitive assessment about causation versus the association that you've been describing? I know you and your colleagues have done a lot of work, for example, in the Central Valley studying the seemingly higher incidence of Parkinson's disease in areas where certain pesticides have been used heavily. And as you suggest, this is something that has been really at the forefront of Parkinson's research now for perhaps at least the last 30 years. What keeps us, I guess, from being able to make a definitive assessment to sort of identify the so-called smoking gun? Yeah, the problem is it's a chronic disease. It takes many, many years to develop. And so it's extremely difficult to identify exposures of things that have happened 20, 30, 40 years ago and measure those exposures and then control for everything else. So the people that we follow, we have a, this unique resource, the Pesticide Use Registry, that we can use some markers, but it's been ex extremely difficult to know what people were exposed to uh, 30 years ago. I'll give you an anecdote, but I think it represents the problem. So a few patients of mine, they were onset of Parkinson's in their 40s, so quite young. And uh, 20 years before that, these two people were friends and they were working at a ski resort in Utah, a small ski resort. And there were about 26 college students that were working there. 18 of them came down with Parkinson's hmm. disease in their 40s. Wow. They're all over the country. So that was the one thing we knew that they had in common. So we tried to go back and figure out what was common to them there. So the resort didn't exist anymore. The water supply had changed completely from different wells that were closed. So there was absolutely no way that we could find out what they had in common in this cluster. So the problem is really much larger when you start dealing with much more common exposures. So one of the things that we're starting to study now, for example, is air pollution. So there's just such a high incidence of exposures. How do you control for those different things? And the other problem is modeling. So one of the ways that we, we try to figure out whether associations are causal or not is trying to recapitulate them in animals and in, in model systems. And it's very difficult to model a disease that probably takes 30, 40 years to develop in a very short amount of time. So if you give rotenone as a great example, if you're exposed to very low doses of rotenone, which is a, a commonly used pesticide, 
over a very long period of time, that actually affects very different systems in your brain than giving very high doses over a short amount of time, which is what we usually do in animal models since... I've never gotten a grant for 40 years. I don't think anybody's going to fund that. So what we end up doing is trying to give large doses in a short amount of time and hoping that that's going to be the same thing or similar than giving low doses over a very long period of time. But obviously they're not. And in fact, the animal systems we use don't even live much longer than a couple of years. So it's extremely difficult to model. Fortunately, kind of with modern technology, we're getting better at understanding at least some of the pathways that may go that these things may act through. So, for example, we know very well that alpha-synuclein misfolding seems to underlie a big part of Parkinson's disease. So now instead of trying to expose and develop an animal who gets alpha-synuclein accumulation, motor features, all the features of Parkinson's, we look at just aspects of it, ones that say increase the probability of alpha-synuclein misfolding and how it might do that so that we can extrapolate that if that occurs over a short amount of time, doing that over a very long period of time uh, would likely lead to Parkinson's. So we have to break it down into these components that can be studied in a shorter time frame. Mm. Then we need to put it all together. Yeah. You know, we kind of forget how long it took for us to figure that cigarette smoking causes lung cancer. You know, it took a really long time to convince everybody, even though that is such a powerful effect. You know, you could do epidemiology and say people that drink alcohol have a higher incidence of lung cancer because they happen to be at bars more and smoke more and all that. So how do you separate these associations? Well, the biggest one was stop smoking and watch the rates of lung cancer go down as they are. So it really takes many, many years and an intervention to actually be able to really prove that something is causal. We've done this for very few diseases, actually. If you look at, we don't know what causes diabetes. I mean, we, we still, these are very complex diseases that have many, many risk factors. And most likely, these risk factors have very small effects by themselves, but need to be done in combination. So it adds a whole nother level of complexity. Let's explore then a, a couple of other ways of perhaps parsing this out or, or teasing this out. And you mentioned a moment ago the sticky protein alpha-synuclein, which is associated with Parkinson's disease. We think that those clumps of that sticky protein are part of what kills cells in Parkinson's. But we've also learned that you can find that clue of protein clumps, not just in the brain, but elsewhere in the body, including in the gut. And that leads me to want to ask you what we learned from these early, what seemed to be early warning signs, perhaps, of Parkinson's disease, things like constipation and whether that's connected to finding those sticky clumps of, of alpha-synuclein in the gut. There have been studies, famous study in, in Honolulu and elsewhere, that seem to put together some of those uh, factors. What does that tell us about the cause of Parkinson's and, and when that those causal factors actually begin? You know, those of us who study the environment really are attracted to that theory that, you know, now that we, we suspect that it starts the earliest 
pathology seems to be peripheral to the brain, or at least in the olfactory bulb and maybe the gut, other places. And these are entry points to the uh, to environmental toxins. So it's a nice story that if you're inhaling uh, through olfaction or ingesting, that whatever is causing these clumps to occur is going to start in those areas. And there's evidence to support it, though by far it's not 100% convincing. I, I think one thing that's important to think about right away, and the way I think about it, maybe it's a little bit of semantics, but I don't think about constipation as a prodrome or any of that. I think it is the beginning of the disease. And it's the early symptoms. It's a systemic disease. And I think we are all getting out of the that idea that it's just a dopamine disease in the substantia nigra. That's just when we diagnose it. So I think of it like if you start getting a little bit of a sniffly nose, you know, we don't know if that's a cold, the flu, or, you know, a sinus infection until more symptoms become uh, much more characteristic of one of them. You start getting, you know, drainage from your sinuses and pain and you know, say, oh, that sniffly nose is due to a sinus infection. I think of the constipation, the sleep disorder as kind of nonspecific early symptoms. And it's only till you get the tremor and some of the classic symptoms of Parkinson's that you can identify those early symptoms. The problem is, is that those early symptoms are symptoms of many things. People are constipated for many reasons and have sleep disorders. So they're not specific, but they're telling us that the disease has started uh, before. And again, you know, it's not 100%, and I suspect that some people are getting the processes being, you know, initiated through environmental causes with the right, in the right setting, and it's very attractive to think inhaling, you know, inhaling toxicants or ingesting them is one great way to initiate it. There's probably going to be more than one way to do it, but it seems to be a large proportion that appears to occur. It does give us hope that we can, you know, identify the disease very early on before people have significant symptoms and hopefully interfere with that process. So I think it's it's a very important field to study because I think it gives us a chance to prevent further development of Parkinson's disease. Of course, another key area which we've learned much more about in the last 10 to 15 years is genetics and its role in, as a causal part of, of Parkinson's and perhaps also how that may, may overlap with environmental triggers as well. Why don't we turn to that next? John, you want to take it from there? Yes. I mean, for a long time, Parkinson's researchers didn't take genetic ideas very seriously. So unlike Huntington's disease, where 50% of the offspring get the disease, there didn't seem to be any strong genetic signal. And indeed, I think you can say with there were so many other environmental candidates like the MPTP, the frozen addicts in California, getting the disease from a, a bad drug and the encephalitis epidemic in 1918, when, which led to the, a form of Parkinson's. There was much more interest until quite recently in environmental causes. Why was finding the genetic sort of signal so difficult to do? So the first thing I think you mentioned right away is it didn't, the majority of patients did not 
you know, uh, express itself in a Mendelian way. In other words, there wasn't, uh, you know, 50-50 of the offspring. In the vast majority of cases, there was uh, none of the recessives, at 25%, etc. So there are very few cases like that. And at that time, I think people were thinking of it as one disease and one cause. Uh, in addition, we didn't have very advanced genetic techniques. So now we know with the identification, as you outlined very nicely in your book, of one of the early families that they're very rare, but you find these families, and then you start finding genes that can cause it. Now, you know, depending how many you, how you count them, you know, 15 or 20 different genes have been identified. They're very rare, these families. And it's kind of used, you know, advanced genetic techniques to identify them, as well as much better communication to track down these family members. So, I think it was very hard because we at one time thinking it's not genetic, and then when we started thinking, well, maybe there's genetic component, we were still kind of thinking it was all one cause. Now we know that there are going to be many, many ways to get there, and then with modern genetics and the discussion, we've been able to identify a number of genes. Now, they have been really, really helpful in trying to figure out the cause, and, you know, or at least some of the pathways to get there. And the synuclein story is, is obviously one of the best ones where the mutation in the gene leads to pretty classical Parkinson's disease and that identified synuclein as, as the main component in the Lewy bodies, not only in those families, but in people without those mutations. So that has been very instructive. And many of the other genes that have been identified have been very instructive in how you can get there as well, we believe. But they're all vanishingly rare, are they? Yes, and that's exactly what I was going to say. As much like, you know, people that are working in the fields in Central California have a very high risk of getting Parkinson's because they're getting huge doses of pesticides, it's still pretty rare. And I think the LERC2 mutation, say one of the most common ones among them, is still only a few percent, but they get a big dose of a very strong mutation. So, they're the ones like LERC2 and synuclein that have a powerful effect, but only affect very few people. There are also more common mutations that have a weak effect. The most common one is the Gaucher's mutation or the GBA gene, where carriers have a higher risk of getting uh, Parkinson's disease. Probably since what we call penetrance, in other words, if you carry it, the majority of people still don't get it. So there are going to be other factors, whether there are other genetic factors or other environmental factors, and probably all of the above will eventually determine who gets it and who doesn't. So I think there's a number of genetic factors that have variable strengths of effect. And again, there are many, many ways of getting there, both environmentally and genetically, and it adds a complexity. Now, one of the things that we think there's, you know, maybe a million people with Parkinson's in the U.S., but from epidemiologists and geneticists' point of view, especially for risk factor assessments, it's a pretty small number. And so there's a lot of statistical issues that we have to deal with what's relatively a rare disease for the types of techniques that people are using to uncover the causes. So we've got a very complicated picture where genes and environment and time interact to produce an outcome. 
How optimistic are you that we're really going to be able to unpack this in detail? Yeah, I think we're we're heading there, actually. I think we're pretty confident. Uh, you know, we need, um, it takes time. You know, if you think about where we are with things, I assess it more like with heart disease, right? There's not one cause of getting, uh, you know, plaques in your heart, but we've identified many risk factors and we can now identify those risk factors for individuals and uh, significantly reduce their risk and change outcomes. So, you know, uh, the statins for people with high cholesterol, for example, has made a dramatic difference. And we can identify that as a risk of getting heart disease. We can then, you know, change diet. We can give drugs to lower those numbers. And we see a dramatic reduction in deaths from heart disease because of that. And now there are multiple factors. There's blood pressure, there's diabetes, there's a whole bunch of other factors that have been identified and cumulatively they have reduced the risk, but we haven't solved it, but we're improving it. And I think that's where we're headed for many of these chronic diseases. So we're we're chipping away at the big things. And um, I think with uh, modern technology, uh, we're going to be there in identifying who's at the highest risk and being able to intervene very early to alter that risk. So I'm quite optimistic about it, actually. One thing we've talked about over the weeks we've been doing these podcasts is that the definition of what Parkinson's disease is has become a bit muddy. I mean, classically, it has to involve Lewy bodies, but it's, it seems that some of these genetic forms don't necessarily have to have Lewy pathology, and they can still be called Parkinsonism or Parkinson-like. Is that a, an important problem or, or just a, a detail? You know, I I am pretty simple-minded about this, and I really don't quite get why it's such a controversy. In my mind, you know, we have clinically defined Parkinson's disease, and we have the the classic things that we talk about. You know, the stiffness and. Uh, the uh, tremor, asymmetry, et cetera, all the clinical signs in response to levodopa. So we have clinically defined Parkinson's disease, and then we have pathologically defined Parkinson's disease, which requires Lewy bodies. Now, the controversy occurs whether if you have clinically defined Parkinson's disease, but then when you go into neuropathology and there are no Lewy bodies, are they the same thing? And I think it's a relatively small part of that, um, especially with the genetic ones. And, uh, you know, I think they're different, personally. If you're looking at it from a mechanistic point of view, if you're thinking about the pathogenesis, they're clearly different. You know, they may share components, but they don't end up with accumulation of alpha synucleins. So they're different diseases pathologically. Therefore, the mechanisms to some degree are going to be different. They're going to have things that overlap that they affect dopaminergic neurons, but there's probably a, a general vulnerability to those neurons at all. So I see those as outliers, and I don't necessarily think that what you see in, say, a Parkin brain that doesn't have Lewy bodies is necessarily going to be equivalent to what you see in uh, uh, sporadic Parkinson's with traditional Lewy bodies. Now, if you're talking about Parkinson's disease from symptomatic treatment, I think 
it doesn't matter as much. And we're talking about treating symptoms. And at this point, we, we focus a lot on dopaminergic symptoms. And I think they're going to be the same. So I think if we just kind of separate it that way and, and not oversimplify it and try to make it all one thing, uh, it's pretty clear what's going on. Let me just pursue that line of thought that you and John were just discussing for a moment more, Jeff. And and that is, we also know in Parkinson's that it progresses in very different ways and that people, everyone sort of has their own version of Parkinson's disease. You know, the old joke is that if you've met one person with Parkinson's, you've met one person with Parkinson's because it seems to play out in such an individual way. So, I'm curious if that, how that connects then to both cause and treatment. Does that mean that what causes, might cause John's version of Parkinson's is different than what causes mine? Or, and, and is that important as far as figuring out how we treat this? Can we alter disease progression? Can we find a way to stop disease progression if the causal agents are different? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I think that's an important question and uh, one we all struggle with. I'd like to start out just by making observations, and uh, I think John mentioned Huntington's disease. So Huntington's is a very, very straightforward genetic disease, right? 50%, da-da-da, we know the repeat length, et cetera. You can have twins that have exactly the same mutation, that have exactly the same uh, genome, and Huntington's disease can start seven years later in one of the twins. So the clearly environmental factors can affect how a very straightforward single genetic mutation expresses itself. So it's not surprising that we have several different risk factors that ultimately end up uh, causing Parkinson's, including genetic and environmental. So it's not surprising that they're going to progress in different ways. So I think um, it's easy to conceptualize that. Now, why it's important to understand that is, number one, is are we targeting things that are common to all those causes? And I think most of us, and myself included, feel that alpha-synuclein, at least for the majority of patients, seems to be a final common pathway. I mean, I, I, we're hoping that's the case. We think it's the case, and everything is pointing to that. So no matter what the causes are, if we target synuclein, um, hopefully it's going to slow or stop the progression for the majority of people. Some of the problems with this variability is how do we even test it? So if you have, you know, two people that are progressing remarkably slow and two people that are progressing much quicker because of their accumulation of their genetic and environmental exposures, you put them in studies and it's going to really make it hard to figure out which drugs that are working unless you have a really a much better defined group with defined rates of, of progression. So that is a large effort going on now by many of us to try to 
better defined subpopulations so that they're more the same and progress more in the same way so that we can find uh, treatments uh, a lot faster. And I think that's going to help. We're seeing that with cancer right now, right? We're seeing uh, lung cancer, 20% have a certain marker on the lung cancer, and you can target that and have a huge effect. But if you treat all lung cancer with that drug, you don't see anything or a very small effect. So this, what's been called precision medicine or personalized medicine, is really going to help. And we need to you know, divide people up into these very focused groups. And one of the obvious ones are some of these genetic groups, whether they're, you know, GBA or LERC2, where they have a commonality in their genetic background that seems to have a large influence on why they got the disease. We can take that group and then target them, and hopefully that more homogeneous group is going to be a lot easier to start uh, identifying disease, modifying therapies. So, it, it is a well-recognized uh, problem. The other way of getting at it, which so far has been unfortunately quite unsuccessful, is finding biomarkers, uh, ways to, uh, you know, influence disease progression, so uh, to measure it. So in Alzheimer's, they have these PET scans where you can see the accumulation of their protein, uh, amyloid, and, you know, some people may accumulate it faster or slower, and at least you can measure that even if the clinical signs are variable. We don't have that yet for Parkinson's despite lots and lots of efforts, and so hopefully we'll get these biomarkers that will also try to help us uh, get over this problem of the heterogeneity of, uh, of Parkinson's, both uh, in clinical manifestations, but also in rates of progression. So it is an obstacle that is well recognized, but people are coming at it at a variety of different ways, and I think they're all important ways to go. Finally, Jeff, can you just outline, kind of, in, in terms of your own work and your colleagues at, at UCLA, what's the next step, I guess, we need to accomplish in order to have a clearer sense of this vast complexity we've been discussing that will help us get one step closer to figuring out a way to alter disease progression? I'm a, a believer that, you know, obviously we want to get there as fast as we can. So we need to do things in parallel and not sequentially. So the most efficient way would be to work out one thing and then go to the next, but that's going to take a long time. So investing in many different approaches, and many of them we've discussed, I think, is is an important step. We need to work on biomarkers at the same time as we need to be working on uh, risk factor, and we need to be working on treatments that are directed towards certain targets all at the same time. So I think we need to have all these things, recognizing that many of them are going to fail, accepting that, because we need to get there faster. Uh, I think the next step, which is just starting, are environmental researchers working closer with geneticists and start modeling these cumulative risk factors, and that's that's also starting. We have some projects with uh, Matt Farr uh, looking at these gene-environment inter interactions in uh, much more comprehensive ways. 
we need to work together more, not only as large collections of patients, but also in disciplines. So there's been a lot of separation uh, between the environmental people and the genetic people, just because I think people really believe very strongly in what they study. So many, historically, the geneticists felt that genetics could explain all of Parkinson's, and I think we've learned that that's not the case, but I also know that the environment can't explain all of Parkinson's. So we need to work more together, and you're starting to see that happening. We're seeing a lot of pooling of data and, and open source data, which I think is wonderful, and we need to continue doing that. And I think all of these approaches coming together, we don't know which one's going to really hit, but we need to, again, invest in many different aspects, um, and this needs to be done uh, both uh, through the NIH, uh, uh, the foundations, Fox Foundation has been a big supporter of these sorts of efforts, as well as other organizations, and having uh, patients be involved. We need subjects to be involved in research if we're going to get there. Doing it all as a group with the same uh, goal Uh, We're going to get there faster. That was Dr. Jeff Bronstein, the director of the Movement Disorders Program at UCLA. And John, there were so many interesting things about our conversation with Jeff, I thought. And part of what stood out to me was how complicated identifying the cause is and how in so many ways that's emblematic of sort of everything we talk about with Parkinson's, that it's complicated. And especially when you consider that we are trying to figure out what causes a disease that by definition takes place over time, that unfolds over decades and is this combination of genetics and environmental factors. And it's just very hard to tease it all out and equally difficult, of course, to try to replicate something that has that prolonged a a, a period uh, in, in a laboratory. Yes, and it's even more complicated because over that period of, say, 20 or 30 years, your disease might be unfolding in a rather different way to my disease and therefore... In clinical trials, something that works for me might not work for you and vice versa. So it becomes a very complicated problem about whether we can divide Parkinson patients into subclinical types that are more suitable for testing new therapies. But there doesn't seem to be a way around it. It just seems to be the nature of the condition we've got. It's very complex. Exactly. Not unlike a number of any other uh, conditions. He, he made the, the comparison to, you know, that they've discovered treatment for one kind of lung cancer that's very specific and effective for one particular type of that disease, but is not more effective more broadly, and that we're faced with some of that same challenge in Parkinson's. And, and, and you know, the, the other point that he made that I, I thought was encouraging, too, is that because of this very complexity, people are now starting to cross out of, of their disciplines and work in a multidisciplinary way and not be so scientifically siloed off so that geneticists are working with those who have seen this from the environmental side and vice versa. And that has to be encouraging, I think, from a, a patient perspective as well. And that's what we're going to deal with our next session, patient perspective. Right. We'll talk with uh, both Sarah Rigari and and Pam Quinn, two people who have contended with Parkinson's in their own lives, and get a real sense of how patients uh, see what the scientific challenges are and what they'd like to see focused on at the Portland Gathering just a few months from now. We'll take that up next time on the Portland Countdown. I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palferman.
Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.